Last week, Pastor Andy walked us through the first 13 verses of chapter 4, which were the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness. And that account, of course, uh, another important step in Luke's presentation of the theme of Jesus as the Son of God. That's been a theme that we've talked about over the last two or three Sundays now. Jesus as the Son of God. That's, an, that's been an important thing that Luke has been continually highlighting. The temptation highlighted that as well. Again, this hallmark theme of Luke's gospel, we saw it in the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. You remember in, in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 32, the angel says to Mary of Jesus, this baby that has not yet been born, he shall be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And we saw the theme again when Jesus was 12 years old and his parents uh, were looking for him. They couldn't find him and, and they, they eventually did find him in the temple teaching. And they said, what are you doing? Where have you been? And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Again, that, that, that picture of Jesus as the son. And we saw it also at Jesus' baptism where the voice came from heaven as the Spirit descended upon him. And the voice said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. In chapter 3, verse 22. So Luke's been trying to get us to understand, like, this is a blinking light. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. And that presentation of Jesus as the Son of God, in whom the Father is well pleased, has also been given in sharp contrast to depictions of Adam and Israel as the sons of God who failed to please the Father. And they, of course, failed to please the Father because of their sin. And as we've talked about, their sin is also our sin. We are all Adam's progeny and under his curse. We are all sinners who are in need of cleansing who are in need of redemption and salvation. And so Luke's gospel account is to write to us, to reveal all of that to us, and to remind us of the things that we've heard about Christ, to bring home again what he came to do, what his message of salvation for sinners is. His aim is to show us that Jesus is the better son who can set us free from the power of sin. That, and that's, by the way, is why the temptation scene that we looked at last week, the beginning of chapter 4, was so important. Because there, Jesus is shown to be the only one of whom it can be said, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? He is the better son. Tempted as we are, yet without sin, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And because that's who he is, because that's true about him, the one who is without sin though tempted, that's good news for sinners like us. Because as Hebrews also says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His victory over sin is good news because it means he can help us who are entangled by sin, who are under the curse of sin. And that's ultimately Luke's point as well. We've talked about this theme of Jesus as the Son of God as a theme, but there's a broader theme of Luke's gospel that could be stated like this. With the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, God's end-time salvation has arrived. Let me say that again. With the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, God's end-time salvation has arrived, and it is available to all who respond by faith. All who respond by faith. Whatever their past life, whatever their social status, whatever their ethnicity, no matter who they are, where they've come from, Jesus has come to bring about God's end-time salvation plan. And that's exactly what Jesus says about himself and says about his mission in our passage today. He reads from the prophet Isaiah here in chapter 4. I'm going to have you look down at verse 18. 
This is the same passage that I read at the beginning of the service from Isaiah 61. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he says about his mission. This follows the previous quote from Isaiah that we saw back in Luke chapter 2, also in reference to Jesus' ministry. If you want to flip back there, actually, I'm sorry, in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Isaiah says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And in our passage today, Jesus will make crystal clear that this is why he was sent into the world. Chapter 4, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's the big picture idea here of the passage and the whole book, really. But that's what we'll be keying in on. What did Jesus come to do? What did he come to do to preach this good news message? And the question for us is, how will we respond to this good news? How will we respond? That's Luke's big idea this morning. So with that said, let me pray. And we'll read through the text and, uh, and we'll walk through it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up this gospel of Luke this morning, this particular chapter this morning. Lord, as we see not only Jesus very clearly stating what it is that he has come to do and whom he has come to save, but also we'll see here examples of those who reject him. So Father, I pray this morning that you would draw our hearts to not be those who would reject Christ, to not be those who would uh, not want all of what he has offered to us and all of who he is, but, but maybe just, just part of it. Lord, Lord, remove any blinders from our eyes that would make us want any less than the fullness of Jesus and his message of salvation. And I pray that you'd encourage us with just the good news of who he is and what he's come to do. And I pray that in his name. Amen. All right, so let's pick up immediately after, again, the account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. That's where we left off last week. And I want you to go back up to verse 13 here in chapter 4. It says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all of the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. All right, now stop there. A lot actually has just kind of happened in these couple of verses. And before we go any further, I think it would be helpful for me to put a little map up on the screen so you can kind of get a sense of like all these different places that are being referred to here. So I know this is a little bit small. Uh, I hope you can just basically get a couple of details out of this. All right. So we just read here that Jesus uh, went out into, into Galilee and it was kind of going throughout the region, teaching in the synagogues, right? So this is Galilee, of course, this region, this kind of goldish colored area up here on the north end of Israel. And you might, just for reference sake, note that it's down here in Judea that we see Jerusalem and Bethlehem here, just south of Jerusalem. This, of course, where Jesus was born, right? But we're told here in the the verses I just read that he goes back to Nazareth where he was brought up. So after his birth in Bethlehem, he was actually raised here in Galilee in the town of Nazareth. So I just want to give you a sense of like, this is where This is where we're talking about. This is where he's going here now. But also we're going to see in this chapter references of his ministry throughout Galilee and specifically here in the town of Capernaum. Capernaum was a coastal town here on the Sea of Galilee. This is where he's going to pick up his disciples. This is where he meets 
you know, with Peter and tells him to cast out the nets. We'll read about all that next week. But this is where we're at. This is where Jesus is and focused on. I just want you to kind of get that in your head so you have a sense of what's happening here in the text. Now, you can pull the map down. Here's the deal. In chronological terms, there is a pretty big time gap between verse 15 and verse 16 here in chapter 4. Again, in verse 15, he taught in their synagogues throughout Galilee. He's being glorified by all. And then in verse 16, he comes back to Nazareth, this town where he grew up. There's a big time gap. How do we know that? Because in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, they show this scene in Nazareth as well. But between the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and Jesus coming back to Nazareth, in Matthew's gospel, there's actually seven chapters worth of ministry in Galilee that's described before he goes back into Nazareth. And in those seven chapters, they contain things like the calling of the 12 disciples, all kinds of preaching, teaching, and healing all over the region of Galilee, specifically in that town of Capernaum, which is why I pointed it out. It also contains the Sermon on the Mount, it contains the scene of Jesus' famous calming of the storm when he's in that boat on the Sea of Galilee and the waves are crashing, right? There's a lot of things that go on in those seven chapters in Matthew's account before we get back to Jesus going to Nazareth. Now, Luke is going to come back around and talk about many of those things in subsequent chapters, but I, I just wanted you to understand that he tells us about Jesus' visit to his hometown of Nazareth first. It's chronologically out of order. So the question is, why does he do that? Why does Luke do that? I think it's because Luke is still trying to make his point about the identity and the mission of the Son of God, this theme that he's been driving home so strongly. I think what he wants to do is he wants us to understand from the get-go what Jesus' purpose is, and what it means to respond to that purpose. And since Luke is taking some liberty here to change up the order of events, I'm going to feel free to do the same thing. So as we look at the rest of chapter 4, I'm actually going to start with the, the, the back end of the chapter, uh, the scene after he's in Nazareth. And, uh, and we'll see him doing some more ministry in the, Galilee, the region of Galilee. And then we'll come back to the Nazareth scene. This, is, this, this uh, foray now into some of the ministry he was doing in Galilee is really just a description of the kind of ministry that he was doing all over Galilee. So there's some examples here that we can draw out. Back in verse 15, when he was doing ministry throughout the region, this is the kind of things that he was doing. So let's look at verse 31 and start there. So it says, He went down to Capernaum, again, that coastal town, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. Now, real quick, anybody know who Simon is? It's Peter, right? This is before Jesus renames him Peter. He enters into Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. 
Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these verses because we're going to see many more examples of similar ministry from Jesus in the coming chapters. But there's a few things I, I just want you to notice as we've read through that ministry in Galilee uh, before we go back to the Nazareth scene. Just a few things I want you to notice. First this, notice the people that Jesus ministered to. Okay? They were people who were in need of healing, right? Both spiritually and physically. And if we remember what Jesus said about his ministry, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, this is exactly what he said he was going to do. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he's doing in Galilee, right? He's proclaiming good news, and he's setting free captives like this demon-possessed man. He's healing people, like bringing sight to the blind. In this case, we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. That's what he's doing. So just notice that. These are the people he's ministering to. This is the kind of ministry he's doing. Secondly, I want you to notice how the demons he exercised recognized him. Remember back in verse 41, what is it that the demons say? They know, you are the Son of God. This theme that Luke's been driving home to us, they get it, right? They know exactly who he is. Yeah, he's the son, the son of God. And then the last thing I want you to notice is despite the healings and the exorcisms that we see here, notice the emphasis of the true power of Jesus's ministry is in his teaching and preaching. The, the miracles and the healings and the things that he's doing are accompanying that teaching, but the emphasis of the power and the authority that the people are astonished by is in his teaching. Again, verse 31, he went down to Capernaum. He was teaching them, and they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house. So he was in the synagogue again. What was he doing there? Teaching. And of course, in verse 43 and 44, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. That's the purpose for which I was sent. All right? So we see the kinds of people he's ministering to. We see clear evidence that, yes, this is the Son of God and should be recognized as such. And the emphasis is on the message of the good news. With that said, let's return now to Nazareth, of Luke's account of Jesus there. Go back to verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to notice something. What Jesus 
did here in this moment was he read to them a Old Testament reading that they knew to be a messianic promise. They knew to be a prophecy about the one who would come, who would be the son of God. So for him to say today, this is being fulfilled, like right before your eyes. What you just heard, you know, here I am. If you're looking for clear examples of Jesus claiming to be the Christ, this is one of the clearest. Because everybody knew what this passage was about, and Jesus makes a very clear claim, it's happening, right? And we're told there in verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But then it says, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? They're marveling because they, they know what they've just heard. And they're marveling because of the, the, of the, the clarity and the authority of what they've just heard and from the one who's just spoken it to them. And in one sense, we could say they're marveling and they're sp- speaking well of him because maybe they're thinking, wow, how great for this Jesus. This, this guy, we watched him grow up, right? We've, we've known him from childhood. He, he turned out pretty good, right? Like local boy made good, right? Good for him. But Luke highlights that their recognition of him is clouded by this strange confusion. Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? And I love how one of the commentators I was reading here this week responded to that. He said, it's as if Luke is, is, is wanting to say here, and, and as the demons are crying out, no. Is this Joseph's son? No. No. A million times no. That's not who he is. He's the son of God. And they don't, they don't recognize that. Let's keep reading. So Jesus says to them, and I think we can infer here, he's very perceptive of the fact that they've missed who he really is. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What's he doing there? He's exposing what they really want from him. He's just let them know, like, I I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling this messianic prophecy. And they're not really interested in his preaching or his mission of salvation as the Messiah They only want his miracles. Hey, do for us what you did in Capernaum. Those were some cool tricks, right? Local boy made good. Uh, Hey, this is your hometown. Like, if you're going to do it for anybody, do it for us. They only want his miracles, and they only want temporary blessings. They seem to have missed his sonship, his identity. Verse 25. After saying, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, he says, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. The Syrian. All right, what, what he's saying to them is, following up on this idea that a prophet is not accepted in his hometown, he's saying, you know, back in the Old Testament, it was the same way. The prophets were rejected. And, and, and in these times, when the ministry of the Lord was most needed, 
famine in the land, right? Leprosy in the land. The prophets, Elijah and Elisha, didn't perform those works of healing amongst the Israelites. Why? Because the Israelites had rejected the prophets. In their disobedience, they had turned away from the prophets. They, they didn't recognize who they were. So what happened is the ministry went outside of Israel to others. God did his work to those who would receive the message. So when he tells them that, verse 28, when they hear these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So everything changed, right? The, the people who were at first speaking well of Jesus and in awe and wonder of what he was doing, all of a sudden hear what he's saying to them. Hey, if you're not going to receive and accept me for who I am, I'll go somewhere else. They get real angry. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So the rejection is complete, right? Like, we want to kill you. But, we're told, passing through their midst, he went away. How he did that, I wish we were given more of a description of, right? Um, but he's the Lord. <laughs> he's just right out of there. All right, so that's what happens in Nazareth. Let me try to bring some application here. Again, the theme, the broad theme of the Gospel of Luke could be stated like this. With the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, God's end-time salvation has arrived, and it is available to all who respond in faith. Regardless of their past life, their social status, their ethnicity, all who respond in faith. So how we respond to Jesus depends on how we see him, right? Do we recognize him? How do we recognize his identity? Is this just Joseph's son? Or do we see him as the son of God? And then, along with our recognizing him, our understanding what his purpose is in coming as the Son of God. What did he come to do? So I want to just give you three points of application here. Three points. The first one is this. And you're going to laugh at me when I say it like this, given my uh, nearly 50-year-old white man persona. Jesus is not your homeboy. That's the first point of application. Jesus is not your homeboy. And I hesitated to use that phrase, not just because of this, but because I dislike it so much. Jesus is my homeboy. I dislike that so much. Maybe some of you remember that in, I think, around the early 2000s, there was this trend of celebrities and and young people wearing a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. It kind of had like a cool urban look to it. This, this Jesus with his hands out, like, look, uh, like very hippie looking Jesus. And it said, Jesus is my homeboy. And it, it was worn all, all over the place. And what's, what is a homeboy, right? I had to look it up, right? I mean, I know what it is, but I had to kind of like, I had to kind of think like, all right, I, I probably need to check the urban dictionary on this, make sure I don't, I don't screw this up, right? Uh, but a homeboy basically is it's somebody from your neighborhood, right? He's a, he's a peer. He's sort of one of the gang. He's somebody that you kick it with, right? That's, that's what your homeboy is. That's who your homeboy is. And that seems to be the way the people in Nazareth thought about Jesus, right? Just this guy from the hood, the guy we, we've kicked it with our whole lives. They couldn't see him as anything more than a peer, and that hindered their belief. That hindered their belief. When Jesus said to them, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, he meant the prophet's mission wouldn't be accepted. 
The prophet's words would never be received as authoritative. They'd never be taken as the word of God. Why? Because this, this is the guy we've kicked it with our whole lives, right? The prophet's words are dismissed because a familiarity with the vessel who speaks those words clouds the view of the God who is behind the words, right? The application then for us, I think, is to not let Jesus become so familiar to us, so peer-like, that we fail to see him for who he really is. And, and saying that, I want to say this. Please don't mishear me. When I say Jesus is not your homeboy, that's not to say he's not our friend. Right? That's not to say that he's not our friend. He calls his disciples his friends. He certainly condescends to us. And he serves us even to the point of dying, laying down his own life for his friends, right? But in recognizing that, make no mistake, he's not your peer. He took on flesh to become like us, but we are not like him. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the very image of God at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He is Lord. That's who He is. And if you're to have any hope of being delivered from your sin, if you're to have any hope of being set free, just set at liberty from the oppression of your own heart and receive the Lord's favor, as he talks about here from Isaiah 61, you have to believe him when he unrolls the scroll, reads the messianic prophecy, and says to you, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When he asks, who do you say that I am? Like Peter, as we'll see in chapter 9 when we get there, you must respond, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And therefore, he deserves our full acceptance. He deserves and demands all of our lives and all of our devotion. He's not your homeboy. And in his deserving of all of our lives and all of our devotion, that leads me to the second point of application, which is this. Jesus, then, is not just an add-on to your life. Jesus is not just an add-on to your life. A, a misguided familiarity with Jesus, as evidenced by the people here in Nazareth, leads to too small a view of his purpose in salvation. Too small. If we only looked at Jesus to sort of fix our current problems, right? Heal our present ills but we have no real interest in him being the Lord of our lives, worthy of our repentance and faith for the atonement and forgiveness of our sins. If we just want the quick fix, then Jesus isn't really our Savior. He's just an accessory. Accessories do what? They serve to point to the glory of something else, right? Some of you are wearing accessories to your outfits this morning. That's fine. It's good. You look good, by the way. But your accessories are not meant to be the center of attention, right? What is? You are. Your accessories are to make you look good, to make you look better. That's what accessories are for. And that's fine for fashion. But that makes for a lousy God. Right? God, just make me look better. Make me look good. You just, you just fit right there. It's a lousy God. 
The people in the synagogue in Nazareth that day weren't interested in what Jesus had to say. In fact, they were offended by it. They were offended by it. Why? Because Jesus revealed to them that the only reason that they wanted him to perform miracles of healing for them is because they figured he somehow owed it to them. After all, this was his hometown, right? After all, they were law-abiding Jews. You owe it to us. Do, it, do your pony tricks here, too. And it's easy to condemn them and their attitude from afar, but truth be told, we can do the very same thing. Perhaps you think Jesus owes you something because you're a fairly good person. You go to church. You make an effort to go through the motions of keeping up with certain Christian disciplines, right? Jesus owes me something. But I think what Luke wants us to get here is if, if Jesus is little more to you than some kind of cosmic ATM machine for whom you just go for, to for withdrawals of blessing when you need it, right? When you're sick or when you're sad or you're in, you're in some kind of a jam and you need to get out of it. So you go to the ATM and you, Jesus, I need you now. Then you might have a warped transactional view of salvation, Right? I do for you, now you do for me. And I, I'm, I'm you know, convinced that that is the way in which many Christians approach the Lord. He's an accessory. Yeah, I have a couple of kids who are going to school right now down in the Bible Belt. Right? They went down to Texas to go to college. And um, on the one hand, they're at a Christian school, and on the one hand, we were really encouraged that they would have the opportunity to go and have Christian friends, Christian peers, because that's not something they experienced really the whole time they were growing up here in, in Chicago. In the public school system where they went, they, they rarely ever met another Christian. Um, so we were thrilled that they would have opportunity to meet some Christian friends, right? That that would be good for them, that they would they would be able to, to really grow from that. And by God's grace, they have, and we're so thankful for that. But it was interesting uh, for our daughter, Taylor, as she uh, was trying to figure out her roommate situation for next year. And she thought, well, the best thing, if I want to have a, a home where, you know, I know, like, Christ will be honored there, I, I don't have to worry about there being, you know, just, just junk that I don't want to have to, like, live in. Uh, the best thing to do would be to, to seek out roommates who go to the church that I go to. And so we encourage her. That sounds like a great idea. And so she began to do that, right? She was meeting different girls. They were going to the same church, maybe even in her small group, and, and just started talking to them about living together. And, and then once they got away from the church and started looking at apartments, she started to find out that for several of these girls, what they were really interested in was finding an apartment where Taylor would be cool if, like, they partied. Like, you're cool with, like, having a bunch of alcohol in here. Well, well we're, we're 19 years old. Like, I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Now, okay, yes, they're in college. But if you're looking for a Christ-like environment, you'd think that going to church to find your potential roommates would be a good place to go. And she called us, and she was so discouraged by this. And she, I remember what she said. She said, I hate cultural Christianity. Something that she hadn't really experienced in Chicago, because in Chicago, it was like she didn't know any other Christians, right? To be a Christian meant something for her. But in a place where everybody calls themselves a Christian, and everybody goes to church, but then they live like hell during the week, it was like, what is this? Jesus was just an accessory to these friends who on Sunday morning would make themselves feel good about who they were and following the cultural tradition of being church-going folks, but during the week, not, nothing like that. Treating Jesus like an accessory to my already pretty good, but you know, maybe sometimes messy life, is the essence of cultural Christianity. That's not true Christianity. 
What does Jesus say to people who only want his benefits apart from his complete lordship? He tells them if they continue to be as narrow-minded as they've demonstrated here so far, they will forfeit the good news of salvation and he'll take it to others instead. So he tells them. When we understand Jesus has no intention of being an add-on, as the Nazarenes finally did, one of two things will happen. One, we may be like the Nazarenes, whose sinful hearts don't want to give up our place of centrality on the thrones of our own lives. And so we'll just say, Jesus, let's go find the nearest cliff. I want to, I want to show you something. Right? Have you been attempting to throw Jesus off the metaphorical cliff? Because you have a sense of what he demands from you, and it's more than you're willing to give. Jesus is not my peer, but must be my Lord. And if you will not be content as an add-on or an accessory to my life, what does he demand of me? You know, if, if we ask that question and we ask it humbly, we might cry out as the apostles eventually did, Jesus, who then can be saved? And the answer is this, those who don't think Jesus owes them anything, but rather can cry out like a beggar, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that's my third point of application, right? Jesus is not my homeboy. He doesn't want to be just an accessory or an add-on to my life. Those are the first two. The third one is the resolution. Jesus is the Savior of sinners and broken people everywhere. As we read through the chapter here, there were four specific mentions of people who received God's mercy uh, the first one, the first two actually, were, were when Jesus was talking to the Nazarenes about the Old Testament days when Elijah and Elisha were doing their ministry. And he mentions the widow of Zarephath. And if you go back and you read the account of what happened there, this was a woman who had a dead child. And she was weeping over her dead child because this child was in need of resurrection. And God gave it to her. He mentions Naaman, the Syrian, who was afflicted with a terrible leprosy. And he came into Israel to see Elisha because he, he, he heard that Elisha represented a God who could save him. And God did that. He dipped in the water seven times and came out clean. We see the man in Capernaum who's possessed and oppressed by an unclean demonic spirit. And Jesus comes to him and shows him mercy and liberates him, right? And then we see Peter's mother-in-law who was suffering from a life-endangering high fever. We, we, we could gloss over the high fever mentioned here, you know, as 21st century Americans who could just go to the medicine cabinet and take a little Tylenol, right? But in this situation, a life, uh, high fever is a, is a life-endangering situation. And he meets her where she's at and he saves her. Jesus came to rescue people. He came to rescue people, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, whether they're a widow in a far-off land or they're a, a Syrian uh, enemy of Israel, right? 
or a dem demonically possessed human being or just someone who's on the verge of death, no matter their background, their past, where they're from, he came to rescue people who know this, that they're living under a death sentence. Because all four of those people had to know that. They're living under a death sentence. And so when they come to Jesus, and better stated, when Jesus comes to them, he comes not as an add-on, but one who brings a complete salvation. He came to save sinners. He didn't come for those who would just be satisfied with a temporary healing or a quick fix, yet would only be filled with wrath at the thought of him demanding more, like repentance and faith in him. That's what he asks. No! He didn't come for those. He came rather for those who would believe him when he said, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yes, Jesus makes demands. Take my yoke upon you. And those demands are threatening and offensive to selfish hearts, those who are only looking for accessories to their already polished lives. But for those who are keenly aware of their desperate need of deliverance from the oppression of their own sinful hearts, his demand is wrapped in an offer of love that will set the captive free and bestow the favor of the Lord upon the oppressed. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. This is an offer of love. I will rescue you. And he does this first by proclaiming that favor in the message of good news that he preached. The message of the arrival of the kingdom of God. The message of repentance and faith in the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, we see miracles of healing throughout the gospel. And I'll talk more about those. I mean, we're going to see them over and over again, even next week. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. But they're not the main purpose of his mission. They serve as pointers to the reality of his divinity. They, they serve as, 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 as validators of his authority as the messenger of salvation. And what is the, what is the salvation that God is, is, is bringing about? It's the reconciliation and the restoration of all things back to God in the kingdom. So when he restores physical things, it's a, it's a demonstration of what's coming. This is going to happen everywhere, right? But the main point of his mission at this point, it's not the miracles. They're not normative in that sense. They're here to highlight the message of his preaching. And that message is the good news of salvation for sinners. And again, this good news is that everyone, not just the Israelite, but everyone who knows him or herself to be a sinner, who knows that they're under the curse of Adam's death sentence, we can come to Jesus in repentance and in faith and believe with confidence that he is the one who has faced all of that same kind of temptation as I have, but he emerged victorious. At every point that I have failed, he succeeded in pleasing the Father and his righteousness will cover my sin. On that righteousness, not my sin, God the Father will look. And he'll find me united to Jesus as I can claim the perfect obedience of the Son of God who was perfect for me. The new and better Adam. And I can say, he's my own. And I am his. 
And Jesus wants us to know this good news is available to everybody. Every underdog, every broken person, no matter your background, no matter your past, no matter your social status, no matter your ethnicity, Jesus came to preach this good news to all who will hear it. He says, I was sent for this purpose. So the call for us is to hear with humble hearts and believe. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a, what a powerful passage. Thank you, Lord, for your written word, Lord. We can come and we can hear what you have to tell us as your people. Thank you, Lord, that by your spirit, you, you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have to say. And Lord, I, I, I plead that, that your spirit would pour out afresh on us this morning, Lord, and just expanding the hearing capacity of us as your people. And particularly those who have not maybe yet heard you before. That we would look, up, look upon Christ and recognize him for who he is, the son of God who's come to rescue sinners. And we'd respond to him in faith. Forgive us, Lord, for accessorizing with Jesus. Lord, purify your church, purify your people. Lord, let us cling wholly to him. Let us trust in his perfection, his righteousness alone. And let us be those who can joyfully say, we rejoice in the Lord because we are those that he has set free. We were once captive and now we're at liberty. Thank you for your son and his work to redeem us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.